0: I'm Brian Santo, EE e. Times Editor in Chief. You're listening to EE e. Times on Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending December 4th. Xilinx recently introduced a remarkable new IC designed to appeal especially to designers of 5G cellular networking products. The design of radio frequency systems, such as 5G and large radars, is an exceedingly precise process. Now that just happens to be a specialty of Pentec. This week, we have a discussion with Pentec co-founder Roger Hoskin on how to design with this funky new Xilinx part. Also, we're going to check in with my EE Times colleague, Sally Ward Foxton, who is editing a new newsletter for us. EE Times Weekend takes a look at the fun side of technology. We'll talk about that. Finally, Qualcomm's Snapdragon processors are at the heart of a good percentage of smartphones from many, many competing vendors. The company just previewed its next Snapdragon for the 5G era, the 888. The word for the number 8 in China is ba. 888 then is ba ba ba, and it's considered a lucky number in China. Here is Lei Jun, the CEO of Xiaomi, one of the biggest handset manufacturers in China, well, in the world, speaking at Qualcomm's event announcing the
1: 888 has Thank you, Lei Jun.
0: In addition to Xiaomi, we have many other distinguished partners launching premium smartphones based on the Snapdragon 888 next year. Each generation of Snapdragon has enabled breakthrough innovation, and we're excited to have all of them on board. We encourage you to hear directly from these leading companies on why they believe in the Snapdragon 888. We'll get back to Qualcomm and the 888 later in the episode. Several weeks back, Xilinx introduced a new radio frequency system on a chip, or RF-SOC. The new Xilinx part is designed for RF applications such as 5G and large radar systems. RF is notoriously squidgy, to use a highly technical term. That is to say, it can be very difficult to build complex RF systems unless you have a lot of experience doing it. Or unless you have help. Pentech specializes in providing that sort of help. The company designs embedded computer boards and recording systems for digital signal processors, software radio, and data acquisition. Roger Hosking is a co-founder and vice president of the company. Roger, thanks for being with us. Can you tell us a little bit about the Xilinx RF SOC and why customers want to use it? Sure.
2: Uh, First of all, RFSOC stands for Radio Frequency System on Chip. And what it really is, it's a complete radio on a chip. And that includes some really important critical parts of radios, which includes digitizers for digitizing radio frequency signals, for taking digital samples and creating analog waveforms. So you have both the receive and the transmit I.O. And then you have FPGA fabric, connected to those data converters to do signal processing, which implement radio functions. And then you have kind of a farm of ARM processors for doing controlling and other miscellaneous tasks. So it really has a complete management system, a digital signal processing system, and data converters for acquiring and generating signals. That's the basis of software radio. So this is
0: a little bit off script, but this differs uh, from what designers had uh, what what options designers had before they would have had to use uh, multiple different chips to perform exactly uh, the same thing so what are some of the primary applications for this RFSoC. And just on that last point,
2: the reason that the RFSoC is is so important is because it it compared to the discrete implementation of the same functions using individual devices, you're saving a tremendous amount of space and power and real estate, you know, b- board space, and you can get all of those functions in a much smaller package using less power than you could if you were to implement those same functions with discrete devices. So it's, it's a, it, it offers that major advantage and that opens up new applications. When Xilinx first announced this chip back in February of 2018, they introduced it as a 5G wireless infrastructure device. And of course, they're looking for you know, mass market Type customers, and they want to have the five G wireless market um, be satisfied with a, a part that they're making. And the reason that five G wireless and this chip are so well suited is that five G wireless uses what's called massive MIMO antennas, mm-hmm. and these are these are an array of antenna elements, thirty two or sixty four elements that each need an A to D uh, and a D to A. And of course, the RFSOC chip has eight of each. It also needs the digital signal processing to do the beam steering for focusing the energy both for receive and transmit from the MIMO antenna to particular users and subscribers within the range of that particular massive MIMO antenna. So having that capability in a very small uh, package so that it could be mounted up on poles because there's going to be a lot of these MIMO antennas for 5G. They're going to be spaced much more closely than the traditional cell towers and more you know, smaller local cells for each uh, of those antennas. That's one application. Another application is radar and that's both for commercial and military applications and, of course, Tracking targets, tracking airplanes, tracking missiles, tracking basically any um, device—you know, ships at sea and and basically anything. Radar is everywhere. We've even got radar in our cars now, you know, to to, to see who's behind you and who's who you're going to hit if you if you don't stop in time. And I guess the other thing that that's really a nice uh, use for the RFSOC is electronic warfare and countermeasures. Where you, let's say you're up in a, a cockpit of a jet fighter, and you've got a, um, an enemy plane coming at you or, or firing a missile at you, you want to be able to quickly generate some kind of countermeasure to avoid that missile from hitting you, or you want to confuse it, or you want to make, make that missile think that you're not really where you are and have it go off into wild blue yonder, and you just wave to it as it goes by. Those kinds of capabilities where you can fuse the enemy with radio signals is extremely important in uh, war fighting. I would just prefer personally
0: not to be in an airplane being fired upon by a missile, but uh, I, I understand why very valuable for those people who would do that. Let's talk about the designer's point of view. What challenges do your customers, designers face when designing with the Xilinx RF
2: One of the toughest parts is to make sure that all of the data converters are synchronized relative to each other so that they're doing the sampling of the signals both for receive and transmit synchronously, not only across the eight channels within the chip, but across multiple chips. If you've got a 64 element antenna, that means you have eight of these chips, each with eight channels. So you've got to synchronize those precisely. If those elements are not synchronized, beamforming does not work. And it's, it's really essential for all of these applications we've just talked
0: about. So I am going to guess that synchronization is a, an, an issue that most designers are, uh, could probably use a little bit of help with. What solutions are available to help meet, uh, meet that challenge and any others that there might be with, with working with the Xilinx RFSOC? Well, the synchronization is extremely
2: tricky and there are multiple signals that have to be treated exactly the right way. And what we did was came up with a product that took care of generating those signals so that we could synchronize across multiple chips all of the different elements in a particular array and do so with a box that somebody could buy. It's actually a a board that plugs into your system that connects up to all of the RFSOC chips that takes care of that synchronization uh, across multiple chips and across uh, multiple boards. That took us about a year and a half to develop. So customers can save all of that agony
0: (laughs) that we went through. (laughs) A bit of tricky engineering in and of itself, huh? Yes. So are there other challenges in using RF SOCs?
2: Yeah, another real challenge is the huge amount of data that can be generated by these um, devices. Just say uh, eight channels operating at four gigasamples per second, that generates eight gigabytes per second per channel, and you've got eight channels, so that's 64 gigabytes per second. That's a lot of data. So mm-hmm. the question is, if you need to get that, how do you do it? Well, it's, it's very, very difficult. And in many cases, the data is reduced inside the chip so that you only are looking at a certain range or a frequency band. That's one way to do it. But we have on the chip a dual 100 gigabit Ethernet interface. There are two of them, and each of them can deliver 12 gigabytes per second. And that's the fastest interface on the RFSOC chip. And so we have, have kind of tuned that and optimized that to run at the full rate and get that data to stream in and off the chip at 24 gigabytes per second in each direction. So that makes a huge difference in terms of just feeding and uh, supplying data to that chip. The other thing is, of course, that mm-hmm. interface is optical. And so being optical, it uses fiber optic being optical which is the standard interface for 100 gigabit ethernet what it means is that you can run connections between stations let's say that might have different um, complements of rfsoc chips uh, up to two three hundred meters apart and still maintain complete connectivity at those very high rates and because it's optical you are completely immune to EMI, electromagnetic interference, and to eavesdropping. It's very difficult to eavesdrop an optical connection. That's actually comforting to know.
0: <laughs> Any last ways to make the RFSC easier to use?
2: Yeah. The basis of our product line is a small printed circuit board module, which is called our Quartz XM and quartz is the trade name for our rfsoc product line it's two and a half by four inches that contains not only the rfsoc chip but all of the support circuitry that maintains the proper operation of that chip at its best performing levels mm-hmm. for example the chip requires 13 different power supplies. One of them is at 40 amps at 0.8 volts. Another has to be very clean uh, for the analog circuitry. Others have to be, you know, uh, very well filtered. Um, so each of those 13 supplies has its own story. And if you don't do it all right, you're not going to get the performance that you want. So we put all 13 supplies on this RFSOC quartz XM module, all driven from a single common 12 volt. DC voltage source. So that makes it a lot easier. The other thing that we did was we brought out all of the very high-frequency analog signals to standard connectors that allow customers to take this module and kind of plug it onto their own carrier without having to worry about doing the detailed printed circuit board design to keep all of these analog and digital high-frequency signals from interfering with each other in that very close proximity
0: of the RFSOC chip itself. Very cool. An- another question from off from left field: mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the device itself and the module that you put it in. Uh, it sounds as if uh, they're very precise electronics. Does the uh, the precision of the operation itself? Um, does that end up in the final end system, radars or 5G base stations? Um, what does that do for their effectiveness?
2: Well, that's a great question. And that's, a, again, another one of the advantages of the Quartz XM module, mm-hmm. because we we do carefully protect, uh, separate, isolate all of the different signals that are connected directly to the chip that could interfere with each other, and we kind of tame them to make sure that they play nice together. And um, what that does is that that preserves the dynamic range of all of those very high frequency, those eight A to D inputs and eight D to A outputs. If you have you know digital noise coming in from the power supply, you could ruin your whole day. You you just can't you you don't want that in a radar because no. that that ruins the whole performance. And it's, it's not easy to do. We spent a long time doing modeling and testing and signal integrity analysis on this module to make sure that we did everything exactly the way it should to, to preserve the signal integrity of all the signals that go in and out of the chip.
0: Very good. Roger, thank you so much for your time today. Hope that uh, maybe the next time we talk, we'll be talking on a uh, 5G phone that uh, uh, that's uh, being connected by some of, uh, by some of your, your modules. I look forward to it anytime. That was Roger Hosking, Vice President and Co-Founder of Pentech. In our conversation, we talked mostly about how the Xilinx part is used, but it really is remarkable in and of itself. For an explanation why, I'd like to draw your attention to an article from our sister publication, embedded.com. Written by Steve Ivanchuk, it's called Xilinx Boosts RFSOC Performance with Digital Front End Hard IP for 5G Radios. Yeah, a bit of a mouthful, I know. There's a link directly to that story on this podcast episode's webpage. E.E. Times has always printed stories about technological performance, or financial performance, or stories that combine a little of both. Over the years, the staff of E.E. Times has always included a mix of journalists who specialize in technology and technologists who specialize in journalism. I happen to be one of the former, while my colleague Sally Ward Foxton is one of the latter. But E.E. Times has always made room for stories that explore the intersection of technology and culture. Recently, we started a newsletter specifically for that type of story. Short bits that might be fun and relaxing to read on the weekend. We ship it out on Saturdays, and we've imaginatively called it Weekend. Sally edits it. I called her up in England to talk about it.
3: Hi, Sally. Hi, Brian.
0: So you are going to tell us about the weekend newsletter. The weekend newsletter is different. Tell us how the weekend newsletter is different.
3: So the weekend edition of e-Times, uh, it's an email that goes on, goes out on Saturday, and it is just full of interesting things. Um, it, it is a little bit different to what you normally get from e-Times. You're right. Although it's the same editors, it's still us, the same people. Uh, writing about the same kind of technology and business focus, uh, but we consider it from different angles basically. Uh, it's done in a different way, you know, it's not hard news. Um, there'll be several kind of shorter articles that are more thoughtful, or it might be just talking about interesting technology uh, just because it's interesting, or it might be something more fun like a personal column or the, the person's personal experience, or just an unusual application of technology, um, this kind of thing. We just try and write something interesting and make it more fun. So we pick a different topic every week um, and the editors come up with these fascinating takes on everything from fireworks to space to algorithms to smells, to the weather, to robots, uh, you know, the uh, the topics really are quite quite varied.
0: So let's pick one of the subjects in one of the recent um, editions of Weekend. Tell us about uh, what some of the specific stories are and let us know which ones you thought might have been fun.
3: So this last week, for example, um, we discussed games and gaming. Um, so our editor-in-chief, Junko Yoshida, uh, she writes about her experiences watching her father play shogi shogi is this japanese board game uh, that it's it's often called japanese chess but it isn't actually anything like chess i mean it's a board game but that's where the similarity ends you know it's way way more complicated than chess in fact and she talks about whether you know today when we teach artificial intelligence to play games you know will it take the fun away from playing board games in person and you know spoiler alert she does not like that idea <laughs>
0: um and I like the one from Maurizio just talking reminiscing about uh getting a Commodore 64 and just actually it was his brother did he say he he commandeered his brother's
3: Yeah that's right uh he had a this, his brother had this Commodore 64 as a child, um, and he, it's very nostalgic, this piece, talking about, you know, playing the most basic possible football game, you know, the most basic soccer game, which they play for hours and hours on end because it was so much fun. Um, but then, you know, learning how to, to program and, you know, learning how to write basic as well. And that really resonated with me because that's how I learned to write basic as a kid. You know, I had a Commodore 64 as a kid. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a really lovely piece. <sighs>
0: So if somebody wants to sign up for the weekend newsletter, how do they do it?
3: If they want to sign up, it's absolutely free. Go to eetimes.com slash weekend.
0: That sounds way too simple. Sally, it was a delight talking to you. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for having me on the show, Brian.
0: That was EE Times editor, Sally Ward Foxton. She just gave you the URL to subscribe, but if you didn't memorize it, worry not. There's a link on the podcast webpage. The business of making smartphones helps make the world go round. Well over a billion new smartphones are shipped every year, and worldwide sales have been over half a trillion, trillion with a T, half a trillion dollars for the last few years. Global sales are expected to be in that neighborhood again when 2020 comes to a close. Though, with the pandemic putting a crimp in everything, the numbers are going to be down a bit this year. Regardless, smartphones are kind of a big deal. In fact, during the keynote at Qualcomm's Snapdragon Summit, the company's CEO, Cristiano Amon, in an enthusiastic gush, called the smartphone, quote, "...mankind's largest platform," unquote. So, when one of the companies that makes one of the most important chips found in a very large number of smartphones from a wide range of handset manufacturers, well, that tends to attract a lot of attention from around the world. Qualcomm's Snapdragon processors are already the heart and soul of smartphones from the world's largest supplier, Samsung, as well as those from Xiaomi, Vivo, Oppo, and Realme, which were ranked 3rd, 5th, 6th, and 7th in the world, respectively. And that's hardly an exhaustive list. There are many other Snapdragon customers, including LG, Sony, and Lenovo. Earlier this week, Qualcomm introduced its latest Snapdragon processor, the 888. Global editor Junko Yoshida called up Jim McGregor, an analyst with Tyrius Research, to talk about what we learned.
1: So I'm here to talk to you about the Snapdragon pa pa pa, as we say, uh, Snapdragon eight eighty eight. So you know, to me, this is a really interesting because um, the as the name pa 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 actually represents it is the um, sort of lucky number uh, for the uh, you know bringing triple fortune to the world, and uh, it's sort of. I shouldn't say pandering, but it is really pandering to the Chinese crowd. In other words, that the Qualcomm, which used to be a foe to the Chinese government, is now the best friend for all the leading Chinese smartphone OEMs. What do you think?
4: That is true. I mean, they've always used the number 8 as their premium series chipsets for premium series phones, so yep. that it's always been the 800 series, but they are kind of going a little overboard. They, they went <laughs> off of their normal nomenclature, which is 835, 845, 855, and on and on and on, to the 888. And I, I think that there's two reasons for that. One is they wanted it to represent their premium smartphone, but also you got to remember that 2000s just been a horrible year. Yep. Why not try to give it some positive spin here?
1: There you go. All right. So on that note, um, tell me that in broad brushstroke, how Snapdragon is different from the previous Snapdragon application processor. Can you explain?
4: Yeah, well, like every generation, they enhance pretty much every core because they're developing each core on this very complicated, heterogeneous SoC individually. Yeah. But they did focus really on a couple key areas. One that they teased uh, up front was tripling down on the camera. Well, what that meant was that they're basically uh, providing three independent ISPs, image signal processors, on the device. Wow. So if you have... Multiple image sensors taking a telephoto, taking a wide angle, and taking a normal. You've got processing engines handling each one of those individually. Now, what that gives them is it gives them a 35 percent performance improvement over the previous generation. Uh. Not to mention, you know, smoother um, zooming capabilities, uh, better computational photography. And they can handle 120 12 megapixel images per second.
1: You know, I do remember during the keynote, uh, the CEO, Cristiano Amon, said that at Qualcomm, we are a camera company. That actually spoke to me. Wow, Qualcomm is now a camera company, right?
4: Well, when you think about it, it makes sense. They have probably shipped more camera modules or more processing solutions for cameras than any other company on the planet with all the smartphones they've shipped into. Yeah. So yeah, they are a camera company. And this new, that's thats a key function. It's not just a key function for, you know, people trying to take video and images, but it's also a key function for everyone else trying to do gaming or trying to do other functionalities with that camera, such as AI. Right. So, I mean, those are two other areas they focused on, or applications, I should say. One was uh, gaming, and the other one was really improving the AI functionality. So in terms of gaming not only do you have the better camera, but you also have an enhanced GPU with the new Adreno. Um, and on the AI side, which is also impacting gaming and photography and everything else, mm-hmm. they've really enhanced the AI engine. This is their sixth generation. They've separated out some of the functions that used to be integrated into one. Yep. They've added new hexagon DSP core, and they've added a new sensing hub which is really critical for monitoring all the sensors in the smartphone that's capable of doing simultaneously, even when the user's not using it. So um, they've really focused, uh, and they, they even admit that they don't know all the uses for AI in a smartphone, but they're trying to lead the industry with uh, higher performance AI solutions.
1: So you know when you and I were talking offline, you said something interesting. When you look inside of uh, SOC like this, this is no longer the competition about you know how bigger or faster your CPU is. It's more about sort of how you orchestrate different parts of the CPU, including ISPs, uh, you know GPUs and uh, the DSP cores, you know, AI engine. Uh, can you walk us through that? What has really changed the game when you have to compare apples to apple between say Qualcomm's pop up versus uh, Samsung's application processor or the Apple's application processor? Can you walk us through? <laughs>
4: Well, you know, it really is not only the performance of each individual function, but how those functions operate together. And this is one advantage that Apple's always had in the fact that not only does it control the hardware, but it controls the entire software stack. So, I mean, Qualcomm, Samsung, everyone else, MediaTek developing chipsets, they not only have to develop a very efficient chip, but they have to develop all the tools and software and sometimes even libraries to allow the application developers and the OEMs to really build solutions that are going to give you the optimal performance. Matter of fact, we saw this this summer with the ML Perf AI performance numbers. Mm-hmm. MediaTek, Samsung, and Apple were all no MediaTek, Samsung, and and High Silicon were all represented, but. None of them had, was a clear leader in all the different AI processing categories. And that's because each one processes the workloads differently. So you, know, you got to remember that when High Silicon first introduced theirs, their first AI application was focused on battery management. Well, as Qualcomm has focused a lot of their AI applications on multimedia processing. So the two are going to perform differently with those applications. And over time, they're going to continue to improve. But AI, just like everything else, is evolving so rapidly that you have to really develop really comprehensive solutions and, you know, just develop as the applications develop.
1: So if you go actually a little bit higher level, you know, for Qualcomm, this pop is the first SoC that integrates both 5G modem and the application processor. Is that correct?
4: Uh, not really. Um, because oh. <laughs> you have to remember that they had the 700 series last year that had the first integrated 5G modem. This uh, is the first premium 800 premium. series that integrates. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and it's got the full X60 5G modem. Yeah. This modem is really, really enhanced. I mean, not only does it do a millimeter wave and sub six, but it also does carrier aggregation across millimeter wave, sub-6, FDD, TDD, um, as well as supporting, you know, pretty much every frequency combination on the planet. So
1: it is, uh, as they say, it's a global modem that uh, works with, it's just everywhere. So that's it is good.
4: truly a global modem.
1: Yeah. So how does that compare with other companies' uh, combined SOCs out there for smartphones?
4: You know, it really varies. Like if you look at the medium te- MediaTek solution so far, they don't support millimeter wave. Uh, matter of fact, they've indicated that they probably won't have that until uh, at least 2021 or later. The uh, high silicon solution uh, does support millimeter wave, does support, it, it's, it's more comparable to the Qualcomm solution. The Exynos... Um, it doesn't support, I don't believe it supports standalone yet. I'd have to verify that. But um, it's kind of a step behind, I would say, where, uh, very similar to MediaTek, it's a step behind where uh, Qualcomm is. And then, obviously, Apple, they don't even have an in grade modem. They're having to use Qualcomm's discrete modem with their product.
1: So, overall, what do you think that Qualcomm has proven with this introduction of Snapdragon, pa pa? pa
4: You know, I think one of the biggest things that they're proven is that there are still huge gains to be had through architectural advancements, um, especially on the processing side. But also the fact that RF matters, and that's the one key area that they lead pretty much everyone else in the fact that they have a complete RF solution that goes along with their modem and their applications processing capabilities. We saw this with the first wave of 5G devices, other than high silicon or the Huawei solutions based on high silicon. Pretty much everyone had to use a Qualcomm RF solution, and that's still pretty much the case. If you want to be on the leading edge, if you want a global phone, you pretty much have to go with Qualcomm today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that is true. So, you mentioned actually high silicon a couple of minutes ago. Um, so, how does high silicon under the current um, political environment. I think uh, Huawei was uh, put in a disadvantaged position. But um, where are we now in terms of High Silicon's uh, SOC versus uh, Qualcomm's new Papa? In your opinion?
4: Well, obviously we don't have all these chips in house yet to test. But looking at some of the initial results and just a spec comparison between, like the Exynos, the High Silicon, the Snapdragon. Um, you would have to, and even the A14 Bionic by Apple, you'd have to say that high silicon's a step behind. Um, They have definitely been impacted by the embargo, uh, technology embargo by the U.S. government. So that puts them at a disadvantage for at least the next year. And obviously, the incoming administration and how they handle that uh, technology embargo is going to have a huge impact on China, especially Huawei and ZTE. Yeah,
1: but at the same time, it's most likely the Chinese will continue uh, to do its own uh, uh, internal development because that's how they want to control its own destiny, right?
4: Oh, I would definitely expect that. Matter of fact, I I would expect that they'd eventually want to go the way that Apple does, develop in their own CPU cores and everything else. But you know, so far they've been reliant on third-party intellectual property and cores, um, such as ARM, and. If they're going to keep going down, I mean, they're probably a couple of generations out before being able to do it completely on their own. So I would expect that they're a step behind now. So they may have to rely on their other partners and note that uh, Huawei has continued to work with Qualcomm and MediaTek over the past couple of years. Yep. So they'll probably lean on them for the next generation until they can get caught up once this embargo is over and uh, have their own solutions in there.
1: All right. Very good. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jim. It was fun.
4: Thank you. It was, it was great. Thank you for inviting me.
0: That was Jim McGregor from Terius Research. Jim wrote two stories about Qualcomm for us this week, the second including more technical details about the 888 that Qualcomm revealed after previewing the chip the first day of its technology conference. Of course, there are handy-dandy links to his reports on this podcast episode webpage. And that wraps up your weekly briefing for the week ending December 4th. Thank you for listening. This episode was sponsored by Pentech. We thank them for supporting this podcast and EE e. Times. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.
1: Hi, Jim. How are you today?
4: Good. How are you doing?
1: You're not in Maui, right? No.
4: Unfortunately, Kevin, matter of fact, not just from Tearious Research, but Kevin Krewal, is probably the only analyst or member of the press that's actually in Maui right now during the Tech Summit.
1: <laughs> and yet the tech summit is not happening in Maui this year.
4: <laughs> exactly. Right? It's completely virtual. I think I think it's just that Kevin didn't get the memo. Ah,
1: okay. Yeah, that 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 sounds like Kevin. <laughs>